0: Turn with me or listen on as I read Acts chapter three verses eleven to the end of the chapter. Acts chapter three verse eleven. We have the preaching of Peter, the second recorded sermon of Peter's in Acts. Hear God's word. Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was uh, determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the prince of life whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer has been fulfilled. Been, uh, has thus fulfilled. He has thus fulfilled, excuse me. Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall uh, you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that the prophet shall be utterly uh, who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many have, have, spoke, have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets. And of the covenant which God made with our father, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you and turning away every one of you from your iniquities. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, how thankful we are for the preaching of the Apostle Peter. And we ask you that now through the preaching of one uh, weaker than he, uh, though in that sense weak like he, uh, is able nevertheless that you would Rather, uh, I'm asking, Lord, through, through the, the preaching of Peter and through my own, that you would have a similar effect upon the hearers, that you would work salvation in the fullest sense, salvation in its, its first beginnings, that of conversion, but even well beyond that, in our sanctification, in our perseverance, unto our glorification. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have here another striking instance of the preaching of Peter. You can imagine this sort of thing is highly interesting uh, to me. I'm I'm obviously a preacher, and I'm I'm interested to to study the sermons of Scripture. It's it's highly edifying in that sense. I imagine, well, you're all students of preaching here. You wouldn't be here if you weren't. You're interested in sermons just like I am. Uh, And and what could be more beneficial in a sense than to hear... Uh, a sermon on the sermons of scripture and that's the sort of thing you have in Acts it's wonderful Uh, let me just say and it should be obvious uh, that these are summaries these are snapshots of the preaching of Peter it's not like these are all the words he said and he preached for like two minutes Uh, in fact we have we have an instance I always laugh when I tell the story but it's true Paul goes so long at one point in Acts that uh, somebody literally fell asleep and died so uh, and, and thankfully that person was raised but but these men knew what it was to preach long sermons. That's not the point. These are summaries. But as summaries, they're very useful to us in the same way we find uh, the summaries of Christ preaching in the Gospels. Now, the preaching here follows the miracle. And we find uh, Peter making many of the same points that I made when I was preaching about that miracle in the prior sermon. I was telling you of the miracle and in doing so I was preaching, much in the same way that Peter is doing here. What we find here is that the miracle drew a crowd, but there was a danger. There was an immediate danger that the miracle would give the wrong impression, that it would give people the wrong expectation that the purpose of the miracle was to create a desire, even an insatiable desire among the people for more miracles. It is amazing to see. That uh, the apostles, as I said uh, last time, really are rarely performing miracles. They're doing it here and there, but nothing like you see in the ministry of Jesus. The miracle wasn't the main thing. And Peter would hardly allow the opportunity that this miracle created go to waste. He wanted people to have the right impression to focus, as I said last time, on the main things, not on the secondary things. And the first thing that I would note before I look at this Sermon of Peter's, which was a three-point sermon, but this will be a four-point sermon because the first point is this, the preaching of Peter. Now, we can hardly analyze the preaching of Peter without being amazed. We find Peter here, uh, a man who had recently denied his Lord, a man who had cowered in unbelief, a man who was utterly humiliated, like Moses, now boldly proclaiming the Lord Jesus. Now that's something that's amazing. You can hardly encounter something like that and not just stop uh, and and pause and wonder at what the Lord was doing now. The preaching of Peter is something which is incredible to consider just in itself, just that God should use Peter of all people. And what we notice about the, the preaching of Peter As a kind of paradigm for apostolic preaching, which then in itself becomes a paradigm for preaching in uh, the post-apostolic period, I mean today, is that it was full of the spirit and of power. In other words, here is poor Peter, cast down uh, by his sin, yet raised up again by his Lord, now preaching in this Tremendously compelling way. Is it not amazing to see Peter uh, gaining the attention of the crowds? Again, the man who cowered at the question of a slave girl. I think she was a slave. Maybe she was at least a little girl. He, He cowered at her question. There's a spiritual energy. As I say, there's something compelling about it. There's a directness and a boldness. He addressed the people. In other words, what we find here in Peter is what we find uh, in the best preaching always, uh, that the preaching was meant for the people. He was uh, he was compelled to address them out of a concern for them. There is a subtle danger in preaching. It's a danger that I have known myself. It's a danger that all preachers know, and that uh, know, and that is to be absorbed with your message, but not with the people. I would say that's a danger that confronts me every single time. I I, I can almost hear the professor saying in seminary, don't forget the people. Well, Peter wasn't forgetting the people here. He was addressing them. He was full of concern for them. That's what animated him. At the same time, do you also see he was full of his message? He wasn't looking for things to say. Out of a concern for the people, the truths of the gospel just flowed out of him to them. Let me go beyond this. He was full of a concern for the people, and so he never offended them. Is that what you think? Well, that's what people think today. Do you see Peter here willing to condemn his hearers? He's willing to confront them directly in their sin. There's something almost, well, no, not almost. There is something confrontational about the preaching of Peter. That, that to me is the thing that's most striking. He addressed the people, and he condemned them for their sin. There's an earnestness to it. There's an appeal. You don't see, in other words, you don't see Peter like you find so often in the in the pulpit today. You don't find a man having a chat with the people. You don't find a man cracking jokes and telling stories. Here is a man downright in earnest uh, pleading with the people, confronting them in their sin, uh, inviting them to be saved from the author of life. It, it's interesting also to notice in this that the strength of his language both in describing their sin and describing the remedy for sin. Here is true preaching. Here is a model of true preaching. There's something I would say which is daring about it. The preaching of Peter. Peter. And are we surprised as a result of this to find that Peter paid the price for the sermon? Uh, it wasn't long after this that, well, they cast him and the others in jail. And yet Peter, who was afraid not too long ago now, was Unafraid. They they let him out of prison and, and they say, now you need to stop this preaching, Peter. It's too much. And he says, no, I can't do that. I must obey God rather than men. I think this is a very good test in itself. What is preaching? What deserves to be called preaching? Well, if the preaching never costs the man anything from his hearers, one might query whether he has ever really preached, did the man ever dare to offend his hearers? Did he ever d- uh, dare to suffer their wrath at the same time, as i 'm saying all of this, there was an element of human weakness which is which uh, goes hand in hand with the element of power always, always when Paul describes uh, this, the demonstration of the spirit and of power. He's saying, I didn't come to you in human strength. I didn't come to you full of eloquence. I didn't come to you as the philosophers did. And I wonder how many preachers today imagine their philosophers as they address the men and the women. He came to them uh, in the weakness of the flesh, as one who had no right to speak to them. This is a man who had denied the Lord. This is, was a man who was, uh, who was humiliated and, and in a well-known public way. And yet the Lord was pleased to use the weakness of Peter of all people. You know, if you and I chose uh, the, the preacher here, we wouldn't have chose Peter, but the Lord did. Why? Well, he was exalting his own strength through the weakness of Peter's preaching. And that's the sort of thing the Lord loves to do. He loves, uh, he loves to confound the wise and the strong of this age by using that which is weak. And, and in that sense, Peter was content to be weak. He was content even to be despised by his hearers for his own weakness, if only... The Lord's power to save might be evident through him. And so it was. I'm speaking of something of a mystery. It's a mystery that only the Christian can comprehend. And that is, uh, once more, power made perfect through weakness. And that is evident in the preacher, and even, I mean, in the preaching, and even in the preacher himself. Again, I say, Peter was content to be weak. He was content to become a spectacle of weakness if only the Lord's strength might become evident through him. There is another test. Of true preaching, another thing we notice, along with the power, is the scriptural emphasis, word and spirit. That's a a favorite phrase of Reformed people. Well, it is thoroughly scriptural, and it goes back to the apostles and even before them. These these are two things that always go together, word and spirit. Don't ever separate them. You, you talk about the importance of the Spirit. That's what I've been talking about. But but never apart from the Word. Always through the Word. Always together. The danger is to have one without the other. You go into a charismatic church and you find all they talk of the, is the Spirit and never the Word. You go into a reformed church, all they talk about is the Word and never the Spirit. <laughs> in fact, you begin to talk about the Spirit and, and people say, you know, you're making me nervous, Pastor. Uh, I might know a thing or two about that in recent weeks. Well, uh, <laughs> You're beginning to sound like a charismatic pastor. I don't know how serious those comments have been, but they've been made. Well, the Word and the Spirit, that's what you want. That's real preaching. Well, look at at the Word. These men were expositors always. When they were preaching, they were interested in uh, declaring the Scriptures, in expounding the Scriptures. Now, they had something that I don't have, and that is they themselves, the apostles, were able to, To compose scripture. Now I don't have that ability. But it's interesting to note. And I think this only underscores the point. That men who could compose scripture. And the men who did compose scripture. Nevertheless. I mean they wrote the New Testament. Nevertheless. They were still appealing to the Old Testament. Always in their preaching. They were still expositors. Even as they were used by God. To write the scriptures. And as they wrote the scriptures. Under the inspiration of the spirit. So they preached the scriptures of the Old Testament. As they were full of the Spirit. Where was the Spirit found? The Spirit was found in the Scriptures and the preaching of the Scriptures. They did not look for the Spirit apart from the Word, but with the Word always. They knew, as Paul said, that, that the kingdom of God is not a matter of word, but of power. They weren't just talking. They weren't just considering the Scriptures together. They were looking in their exposition of the Scriptures for the Spirit. That's exactly what we should do. We shouldn't be content with the Word only. You see, that's the danger we face. We should always look for the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit through the preaching, through the word, and in our own lives. The kingdom of God is not a matter of mere talk, but of power. That's what was evident in the scriptural preaching of these men. Another thing I would notice in general before I get to his sermon is that Peter if I could put it this way, had good instincts. And there's too many preachers today who have bad instincts. Peter preached the great things. He wasn't interested in uh, the things on the fringes. He wasn't a man who was interested in debating uh, the, the, the lesser important things that happened to interest him. Out of a concern, a practical concern for his hearers, he preached the things that were most pressing, they were most important, the things which were more, most cultivated to help his hearers, even if they didn't like it. But he was a man who was absorbed with the great facts of history, the great, great facts of redemptive history. These apostles were men who knew the power of godliness. They were men who knew the evil of sin. They were men who were well acquainted with Jesus Christ as he came into the world, as he died for sinners, as he raised by the power of the Father into the presence of the Father and would come again with glory. These are the things that filled the preaching of the apostles. And so, again, it's a warning against uh, an interest. We, we read this, in fact, in, in Titus chapter 3. Paul said, I want you to avoid, in essence, the things that don't matter Quarrels about genealogies or or whatever. We're we're all drawn with a vain curiosity. In fact, if you ever read Calvin, he talks about this all the time. He says, you need to get rid of this speculative theology. And there's too many preachers with speculative speculative theology. They're interested in the things that don't matter. Well, absorb yourselves with the things that do matter. Peter preached the great things. Well, what did he preach in particular? He preached three things in this sermon. There was a three-point sermon. First... Jesus. He preached Jesus. And here was the really important thing. I just said he preached the great things. Well, this is the greatest thing of all. The name of Jesus, the person of Jesus, the person Peter followed, the person Peter knew so well, the person who had died and was raised for Peter, the person who had commissioned Peter, the person who had restored Peter, the person who had sent Peter to preach now to them, filling him with his spirit, having gone to the father. You see, the the real focus here, remember, Peter isn't just preaching a sermon in isolation. He's preaching following the miracle which just occurred. And he's saying, I want you to realize this. The thing that is most important is not this man who is standing beside me that I've just healed. That's always the danger uh, in the case of miracles. It's the focus on the miracle. It wasn't the healing itself. So not the man, not the miracle Nor was it the man who healed him. In fact, Peter seems to especially underscore that when he says, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? That is that miracle. Or why do you look so intently at us as though by our own power of godliness we had made this man walk? No, it isn't the miracle. It isn't the miracle worker. That isn't the point. Don't become preoccupied with these things. You see, there's even a temptation for us today. And it was a temptation that was present in the early church to become... Uh, enamored in a way with the apostles themselves and to lose, uh, our true focus on the true, uh, on the truly important thing on the really important thing. I'm not saying these things weren't important. It was remarkable what the Lord did to this man. It was remarkable how he did it. It was remarkable through whom he had done it. Even one so weak as Peter. But these things were remarkable only insofar as they were used by God, Peter says, to demonstrate the glory of his son. Otherwise, I would say these things were sinful of themselves. But insofar as they demonstrate the glory of his son, well, then there's something really righteous, something really wonderful. But if they were used for anything else, if Peter promoted his own glory, if this man began to glory in himself, well, then there was nothing. There was nothing good in it. Peter says this, it wasn't about us. It wasn't about the man. It was about this. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus. That's the point here. It's the glory of the son of God, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He was the one who was doing this, Peter says. Just as he raised him up at the resurrection, verse 15 whom God raised from the dead and through whom God healed this man Verse 16 and his name through faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all, not the men, not their piety, not their godliness, not even their faith. That wasn't the point. It's what God was doing through them. Here is the true importance of the miracles. And what he was doing was glorifying his son. And so too, uh, we could say, uh, uh, along with the glory of the son is the name of the son. And that name is Jesus. The importance of the name of Jesus. There is in his name. I just read it, verse 16. In the name of Jesus, there is power. Even today, that is true. Don't ever discount the reality of that. In the name of Jesus, there is power. Tremendous power. There was power in those days to heal this man. There is, even today, power to save in the name of Jesus. Or as the apostles would later preach, there is no other name by which men are saved except the name of Jesus. But who was Jesus? This man and this man who was named Jesus, who in reality, Peter was saying, was the Lord himself. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He said that earlier on in Acts chapter 2. And that name is Jesus. In his name there is salvation. That's what the miracle was demonstrating. But who was Jesus? Well, the central task of preaching is to make that clear. If we're not clear about who Jesus is, then we haven't really begun to do what we ought to be doing. It's obvious here that Peter, in, in, in the grandness of his speech, is making it clear in so many ways just exactly who Jesus was. He says that Jesus, and, and he's consistently using, not surprisingly, the language of the Old Testament. He says, first of all, that Jesus was God's servant. Isaiah 53, how does he put it? He says, uh, God glorified his servant, Jesus. That, that is a more significant term than perhaps you realize Because Peter is speaking of the glories of the servant and he's speaking of the sufferings of the servant. Well, if you read the end of Isaiah 52 all the way through Isaiah 53, that's what you'll see. The father was pleased to glorify his servant, even as he was pleased to crush his servant. Here is the suffering servant. That's who Jesus is. He's the suffering servant. He who was suffered yet was exalted. He's also the holy one. This is a title which is ascribed to God himself. You couldn't. Well, you couldn't say this about anyone but God. This is intentionally provocative. It's underscoring, obviously, the holiness of Jesus Christ, not just as a holy man, but again, as God. There's an interesting uh, account in Mark's gospel where where the demons are confronted with Jesus and they say, You are the Son of God, the Holy One. And, And you remember I said that the demons never loved Jesus, but they did believe in him. They knew who he was, but they hated him. But even the even the demons were able to say, you're the Holy One of God. And Peter was saying that. Peter was declaring it through the preaching. He was making it a matter of faith. He was making it a matter of salvation. Beyond that, he's the just or the righteous one. So emphasizing along with his holiness, his justice, his right to rule, his right to judge. Uh, Even beyond that, we could say something of the fact that salvation is the gift of righteousness. Perhaps that is implied as well. He's the Prince of Life itself. And there's 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 an irony here, of course, he's saying to them, you chose a murderer to be set free so that the author of life might be killed. Finally, he's the prophet. He's the prophet whom Moses predicted would come one even greater than Moses. One whose words the Lord would require of the people. The preaching of Peter sought to make all of these things clear. Who is Jesus? Well, he's all of these things. The name of Jesus conjures up all of these thoughts, all of these prophecies. And in doing so, he emphasizes not just the fact that salvation is only possible in the name of Jesus and that there's power in the name of Jesus, but in order to access that power, we must have faith. He's emphasizing the importance of faith in the name of Jesus. You've got to believe the gospel, repent and believe the gospel. That was ever the message of Jesus and of these apostles. and his name, through faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know. That's the same thing we find Paul preaching all through uh, through Romans and I do call it preaching. I view the apostles as, uh, or the epistles rather as a kind of sermon to the churches. Uh, all through that epistle, Peter is, uh, Paul is saying rather that the way a man is justified is how through faith. Merely by believing in Jesus, by placing our trust in him, we are accounted as righteous in the sight of God. It's the same thing here. Through faith in his name, this man was saved. Or at least he became a picture of salvation. He goes beyond that. He says, yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. There's a kind of theology of faith here. Not only is faith the instrument of salvation, A man is confronted with the name of Jesus and the person of Jesus. He believes and he's saved. Well, how did he come to faith? Well, even then, you see, he says, through him. Even when a man comes to faith, he gets no credit. Because faith came in just the same way salvation came. It came through him. Jesus is the channel not only of salvation but of faith. So that whether salvation is considered as the gift of God or a gift which is received by man by faith, even then it is through Jesus Christ and through him alone. And yet all all of this... Uh, Being the nature of salvation, a proclamation of Jesus and faith in his name, a faith even which comes through him, is contrasted in a mighty way. And here we see the daring nature of Peter's preaching. It's contrasted with what men did to him. They delivered him up. They denied him. They killed him and so on. Who did they kill? They killed God's servant. They denied the holy and the just one. They refused to be saved by the power of his name. Here was their sin. And yet, thank God for all, uh, and this is how Peter presents it in these verses, for all that man did to Jesus, that was not enough to thwart God's purposes. It wasn't as though man's sin had stamped out the salvation of God or cut it short somehow. No, God's purpose was accomplished in spite and even through the sin of men. And yet, even as he says that, he's vindicating God, but he's not vindicating man. He isn't saying, well, you know, it's all right after all. No, still their sin remained. It still uh, was, was put as pointed as could possibly be put. You're the one who did this. And didn't we just sing that ourselves? I crucified you. Do you see in this, this is a point I'll return to, but do you see how man really feels about Jesus? Man in sin. Man in his natural state. You know, uh, today it would seem, and I think this has been true for some time, maybe ever since the Enlightenment, maybe before that, but the unbeliever thinks that it's possible to admire Jesus, and even in a way to follow him. But if you ever begin to present Jesus as he really is, as the Holy One, as the Just One, as God's servant, even as His suffering servant, apart from whom there can be no salvation, what you will find without fail, is that these men who thought they admired Jesus and even followed him in a way, they, re- in reality, hated Jesus. They deny him, and they would kill him if they could. But that brings Peter and me to the second point of his sermon, and that is repent. I've just been focusing on verses 11 through 16. Now we come to verses 17 through 22. All that he said makes room for repentance. And it's interesting even to note the change in Peter's tone in in his daring uh, a bold condemnation of their sin he defines their sin and yet I won't say he's ready to excuse their sin because he isn't but there is a, a kind of sympathy that he takes up as he, as he begs them to repent of their sin he says well listen I know you acted in ignorance you see he's changed his tone a little bit verse 17 yet now brethren I know you did it in ignorance even your rulers in a way we could say well Peter wait a second are you excusing their sin all of a sudden? Well, no, he wasn't. He was stating what was also a fact. Yes, it was a fact that they denied the righteous one. They killed him. But it was also true to say, and he could rightly say, that they did act of ignorance. It did not Jesus himself say so from the cross. Said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There was an element of truth in this. We even find Paul saying something like this in First Peter First uh, Timothy, chapter one, verse uh, thirteen. He says, uh, but, "But God was gracious to me, for I acted in ignorance." There's something to this, though. Even I confess, I don't fully understand it. I just note, I notice the change in his tone. He's beginning to relate to them. In fact, he knew what it was like to deny Jesus. And yet still to find that the door of repentance was open to him. As he does so, he vindicates God. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ, the Christ would suffer, he has fulfilled what you did in ignorance, what you did in malice on the one hand, ignorance on the other hand. Nevertheless, God worked for the good of men, even the good of these men to whom he appealed. And what was left to do but to repent, verse 19. This is the key verse. I I emphasized it last time. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. What a wonderful gospel invitation. The, The nature of the word repent, by the way, is... Uh, explained by the further word turn, Uh, the New King James says be converted, that reflects the King James. I do prefer the newer translations which simply say turn, repent and turn, turn from your sin, wayward sinner. Turn from your malice, turn from your hatred of God. Hear his gracious pleadings, turn unto him and be saved for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Do we understand what repentance is? This is a perennial pastoral problem. I find that people are not clear about what repentance is. And yet I'm trying to make it as clear as I can. It means turning, beloved, turning. Turning from sin unto God as he extends his grace to you. And what is the result of such repentance? Well, Peter says this too. He says that your sins may be blotted out so that times are refreshing May come. I I like how uh, William Guthrie puts it in uh, The Christian's Great Interest. He says, The gospel is God proclaiming his terms of peace with man. God is the offended party, and yet he comes to man and he says, I would be at peace with you. I am offering terms. You see, it isn't man saying, I would be at peace with you, God. God isn't interested in that, but he's saying, I would be at peace with you. And that's precisely what Peter is preaching. As though God God through him on these terms you may be at peace with him with me God says I've provided the remedy all that I ask of you all that I ask of you is that you accept the terms will you receive salvation as a gift I lead you to the waters to the living waters will you drink from them will you turn from your error your ignorance your unbelief your malice your hatred. Will you give up the hatred of God and begin to see him as the fountain of all grace, mercy, and life? After all, why did God determine in advance that the Christ, his servant, should suffer at the hands of men? Why did he allow him to come into this world and fall into the hands of malice men, knowing they would kill him? Did God know what he was doing? Was it not for this reason, Peter says, that their sins, even the men who killed them, That even their sin should be pardoned and remembered no more. That's the offer of the gospel here. Here was the irony present in the preaching of Peter. These men had killed Jesus Christ. Yet in doing so, God was issuing their pardon. If only they would accept it from him. And would they? That was the question of the preaching. Would they accept it? Would they turn again unto God, having despised him, even as he had uh, had dwelt among them in the flesh? You see, even now God was saying to them as he's saying to you and as he had said through Ezekiel, why will you die, O sinner? Christ has died for sin. There is no need that you do. You should do the same. Will you not rather turn and be saved and live? I pardon you freely, God says. He says that to all sinners. I pardon you freely by the blood of my son. If you but turn unto me. Will you drink from this fountain? Will you accept this gift of life and forgiveness and righteousness in my son, my servant, that your sins may be blotted out? Do you understand that the Lord himself couldn't put it stronger than that? They're blotted out. They're taken away. They're erased. They're remembered no more. The Lord minds them not. So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Isn't that what man wants? He doesn't just want to know in a legal way that his sins are forgiven. But he wants to be refreshed in the presence of God. He wants his burdened conscience to be set free. He wants to be at peace. Here's the free offer of the gospel, beloved. It's the preaching of Peter here. It's it's what I hope my preaching is as well. The gospel is offered freely to sinners. Without cost. Come to the waters, the living waters, and drink without cost, and you shall be saved. And that's what this man was a picture of. You see, we haven't forgotten about the man who was healed. He proclaimed in his body the power of Jesus to save. Again, you remember what Jesus said when he healed a lame man in his own day. He said, so that, and he had not healed him yet. He says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. I say to you, stand up and walk. And as he stood up and uh, walked along with this man, what became clear was not his power to heal. What became clear was his power to save. The authority he possessed to forgive sins. Peter doesn't say here, come to me with all your ailments. No, he was focused rather on the real issue, the real plight of man. And that is, I said I would return to this thought, I say it again. Or or I return to it now, that man is a God-hater. You see, I could say man is a sinner, but let me try to be more specific now having been helped by Paul in Romans chapter 8. The real problem is that man hates God, is that man is at enmity in his carnal state with God. He doesn't want anything to do with God. God uh, pleased with man, as it were, through the prophets and the apostles, and, and man hears him not. He just hardens his heart in unbelief. The gates of heaven are open to him, and yet he wouldn't, he wouldn't even begin to take the first step. Man is filled with hatred and malice towards God. Man would rather go to hell than to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And if man could, well, he would lay his hands on God and he would kill him. In fact, so man had done, at least in his own mind, in a sense. The problem is that man hates God. But the wonder of the gospel is that man in his hatred, even then, God offers his grace to him. He extends his grace to him. He invites him unto himself. I I can hardly imagine uh, a stronger way of putting the grace of God, even the abounding grace of God, that God would even forgive the man who hates him. And beyond that, that God would turn the hatred of man into man's salvation, as he did at the cross of Christ. Of course, we know that even God can go no further than this. What more could he do? You remember the parable in the Gospels? He says, the Lord says, uh, in essence, describing himself, he says, well, I'll send this man and then I'll send this man and I'll send this man. And each time they killed the man, they rejected him. And he says, well, I I think I think I'll send my own son. They'll listen to him. And then, well, of course, they don't. And what does the Lord do? Well, he's run out of options at that point. He just rejects man at that point. I say with reverence, God himself can do no more. But offer and extend his grace to sinners who hate him through his own son. And if man will not accept the son of God, then there is no more that God can do but to turn from man. But should you accept him, Peter says, then he will come to you. Not now, for he has gone to the Father, but he's coming again, verses 20 and 21. And that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of his prophets. You, you see, in a sense, Peter is saying, I understand that Jesus has come and you missed your chance. And their hearts at that might have been filled with despair. But he says, well, don't attach too much importance importance to that because I need you to realize that he's coming again he's gone into the gone to the father but he will come again in glory and if you but believe in him if you receive the gift of salvation in his name then when he comes again in glory he will come not in wrath but he will come as your savior here is the gracious gracious invitation that God is offering to man through the preaching of Peter it's full of consolation to those burdened and bruised by sin. He speaks lastly in the third place of the witness of the prophets. He says, he says in verse 21, God, which he has spoke, God has spoken by the mouth of all this holy prophets since the world began. All of this was attested by the prophets. Here was the message of God in the Old Testament now confirmed in the new. It was a matter of promise. Now the days of fulfillment has come. And so much of the preaching of the apostles is simply this. Do you realize that you are living in days of fulfillment? Do you understand your privilege? This is exactly, Peter says, what God said would happen. Everything that happened in the Gospels. Everything that is going to happen in the fullness of time at the end of the age. God has predicted. He is foretold by the prophets. And we might believe that with absolute certainty. This is what was foretold by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 22 through 23 in the preaching of Peter. For Moses truly said the Lord will will raise up another prophet. And who's that prophet? That prophet is Jesus. Don't you understand? God said this was going to happen. And and verse 24, and, and all the prophets, Samuel next, but all the rest, they look forward to these days. He's speaking to these Jews, you realize. He's saying everything they look forward to, you are now enjoying. You might partake of yourself. Verse uh, verse 25, you are the sons of the prophet of whom God said to Abraham and of the, and of the covenant which God made with our father, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see, God wasn't just speaking to Abraham there. He was promising a worldwide blessing beginning with his sons. The seed of Abraham would inherit the promises. And so he closes to you. First to the Jew first to you first having raised up his servant Jesus that is not from the dead but having well in essence saying I raised up the prophet so I raised up Jesus I sent him to you in other words sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities I sent Jesus to you God says to the Jews I raised him up as a prophet in your midst and here now is the word of God to man this is how Peter closes The sermon. He says, What was long ago predicted has come to pass. Jesus has come into the world. And why has he come into the world? He's come into the world to save sinners. He's come into the world in order to bless you, Peter says. He sent him to bless you, and he sent him to turn away every one of you from your iniquities. Now, I read that in Titus as well earlier today, that that uh, the grace of God appeared. Why not forgiveness only, but so that we would renounce ungodliness so that we would be zealous to practice good works so that we would be holy. The grand design of the gospel. Is the turning away from iniquity is well, let us see here another definition of repentance, the grace of repentance brought into your life. Jesus Christ did not come into the world to confirm sinners in their sin, but in pardoning them uh, to enable them by his grace to turn from sin. And are there any here who have not yet heeded the call of the gospel? The call of the gospel is this. Verse 19. Repent, therefore, and be converted or turn that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And to you, well, not first, but second, to you second, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Amen. And let us return our praise to God for his word by standing together and singing him 349. Please.